And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined today by a cast of merry men, including Sebastian Stafford Bloor. Hi, Seb. Hello, Joe Devine. How are your gates this morning? Yeah, they are fine. Well, just fine. There we go. Mr. Toad joins us. Hello, uh, JJ Bull the Bullet. Hello. How's things? Do you think Mr. Toad will catch you on? No. I don't know. <laughs> I think Mr. Toad caught on in the past. Um, John McKenzie, also here. Hi, John. And a happy birthday to you for yesterday. Thank you, mate. Hello. That's, well, you're welcome. And also Steve Hankey's here. Hi, Steve. Morning. Oh, hello. That's, well, yes, okay. That answers the question of whether Steve should talk again on today's <laughs> podcast. Hmm. Anyway, it's a spooky edition uh, because, of course, it's Halloween as we record. So hopefully... There'll be, uh, you know, some ghosts in the machine. What does that mean again? I can't Hopefully there won't be any of those. I can't believe I've not brought the skeleton into the studio. On this, yeah, it would have been good for... the spookiest for... of days. I'm feeling very spooky, spooky today. Why don't you grab the skeleton and he can stand behind you while I do the rest of the intro? Yeah, okay, you get the skeleton. Yeah. And for viewers of today's uh, uh, podcast, watching us on, on the YouTubes, uh, you'll note that I'm not in the studio, I'm at home. Uh, and that's because I put my back out lifting a hoover. A very spooky incident indeed. But anyway, uh, not so spooky uh, for uh, the football, although perhaps it is. I can hear the sound of a skeleton being rolled in. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> He's very clicky. Mr. Skeleton makes a lot of uh, Jacques de Bones, as we call the skeleton, makes a lot of clicky noises. Anyway, it was a spooky affair, the football this weekend as well, of course. Lots of uh, giant killings, including uh, Chelsea down, Liverpool down. We'll be talking about those games. We'll talk a little bit about Aston Villa and their new manager. Manchester United uh, scraped a, a victory at West Ham. We'll uh, discuss that a little bit. And of course, we'll head to the continent to talk about Juventus, potentially some Barcelona, and potentially a little bit of Lionel Messi. Um, but uh, if you like all those things and you want to be afraid on a daily basis, then you should subscribe to The Athletic. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, where the quality of the journalism is so stunning that it's scary because of how good it is. <laughs> I actually really like that one. Yeah. That was, that was really good. That was really good. Also, one more thing I'd like to say, um, we're getting uh, perilously close now. I believe it's uh, two, two weeks away from the TIFO book uh, being released, uh, TIFO's How to Watch Football, 52 Rules for Something Something, a subtitle I can't remember. I can never remember the subtitle, Seb. What's the subtitle of the book that we've just written? For How to Watch Football, yeah. So it's just uh, 52 Rules for Enjoying the Beautiful Game. Is it enjoying? Ah. Oh. On this spooky day, I choose to believe it's enjoying. Yeah. Okay, fine. Well, anyway. It's counterbalancing um, the skeleton. There'll be uh, pre-order links and stuff in the uh, in the description. It's really good. We really like it. Seb has written most of it. John and JJ have contributed as well. Sister Alice has uh, designed it all, but there's uh, in included uh, illustrations from, from all of the people that work at TIFO. We're very, very proud of it. Um, and it comes out just ahead of the World Cup. It's a perfect 
Christmas gift, I would say, for uh, for anyone. And it's also, whilst it's not a children's book, it is child appropriate. So, you know, you can safely get it for the children in your life. Uh, anyway, thanks for that. Um, we're very proud of that. Fine. Uh, I will leave you now in the warm hands and the cool embrace of Jacques de Bones, the spooky skeleton. to begin but Brighton and Hove Albion 4 uh, one Chelsea John um, De Zerbi De Zerbi finally getting his first uh, victory uh, with uh, with Brighton an impressive game wasn't it did you enjoy it I did I am a big fan of Roberto De Zerbi because I have to play up to my hipster credentials so yeah nice to see him doing well it will be great to see him have a good career at Brighton I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the ideas that he likes to put up across in his teams slowly coming through have we started to see those yet? Do you think? Because you know it's been a little bit of a rough start for him, and it's hard. It's always hard, um, you know, when a new manager arrives, particularly at a club. Quite an unusual thing when a good manager leaves with the team are doing well. That's not that common, to be honest, these days. And replacing them with another good manager sometimes you, you think it might, might take a little bit longer to start to see those ideas come through, or what of Potter's stuff that Deserve keeps, what he wants to change. Have you noticed any sort of significant changes yet? Yeah, I mean, both managers are similar in respect to the fact that they're both going to try and build up in certain situations. Now, the way that they're going to build up is different Different times. De Zerbi is famous for really overloading the deeper areas when he wants to build up. But again, like both, I would describe both managers as sort of problem solvers in that sense, that they're going to see opposition presses as a problem to be solved, and they're going to think of creative ways of doing that. So there is that similarity there between the way that the two of them play. And we did see that happening in this game against Chelsea, but I thought Brighton were really quite direct in this game. So they were building up, but they were trying to get forward as quickly as possible, trying to get the ball into wide areas to... I guess, get into the spaces behind the the Chelsea wingbacks. And yeah, it worked out quite well. I mean, there's an element of luck insofar as, I mean, they got the, the goal very early on. So Trossard scored in about five minutes, I think. And then they got a an own goal from a corner from Ruben Loftus-Cheek. So and then that was 15 minutes-ish. And so Chelsea were 2-0 down very quickly in the proceedings. And I think it was just tough for, for them to really get back after this. And um, I've seen a few Chelsea fans online actually talking about how when Chelsea do go behind like that, with this squad, it does feel as though they they do sort of roll over a little bit. So I suspect a lot of this comes down to the fact that there was those two goals early on, which which really put them in in the driving seat. Then there was another own goal later on, actually, and I think I think I'm right in saying that until Pascal Gross scored in injury time, pretty much all of the goals that had been scored for Deserbi uh, Brighton had been either Leandro Trossard or own goals. Um, so yeah, I think the first five were all Trossard, weren't mm. they? Who's having an absolutely yeah. banging season right now, actually. So he's a, a long-term love interest of mine. So it's nice to see him doing well. I loved his, his, his first goal, the calmness to sort of take it around the goalkeeper. And then, although you would, you would imagine shooting on an empty net is straightforward when there's two big defenders in the way, him hitting it, you know, into the, into the sort of far post and then was great. So as well as Brighton played, Chelsea, they just seemed kind of all over the place. Thiago Silva made a couple of amazing goal line clearances early on. But it was real sort of uh, edge of the seat stuff. They looked a little soft. I think I'd use the word sloppy, Joe. So the Thiago Silva clearance you, you reference actually came from a really bad mistake by him. So depending on which camera angle you can find, 
he's trying to play out from just the edge of his own box. And it's really difficult to see who he's aiming at. He chops his pass out sort of diagonally right, leaves it short. And that's the that's the the move from which he has to make the clearance. And ordinarily, when that kind of thing happens, you see, I mean, it can galvanize a team. People go, oh, come on, you know, we're away here. We don't want to get under the pump and, you know, find ourselves in a hole. And yet Chelsea never really switched gears even after that. It felt like one of those games in which once Brighton... I don't know, there was no... I, I'm, I'm running the risk of sounding a little bit Graham Sunessi here. And I, I don't want to use the phrase wanted it more. <laughs> really trying to edge around it. But it was one of those kind of things. If you look at kind of... If you look in that first 20 minutes at some of the 50-50s, some of the tackles, some of the intensity, Brighton win absolutely everything. And at the time, it feels a little bit inconsequential because you're waiting for Chelsea to play their way into the game. But all of the direct moments that John talked about feel like you know Brighton's moves forward are a little bit quicker now than they used to be. I don't know whether that's deserving or whether that's just the evolution of what Potter left. But Chelsea, Chelsea looked happy to be beaten. And... They seemingly accepted at 2-0 when sort of Loftus-Cheek sort of dangles a leg and then just deflects it into his own net. It's almost like a switch goes off there and you think, right, well, we've lost this game. And it's it's kind of hard to watch given the kind of the resources there. And it's particularly unusual when you've got a new manager because they came onto the, into the game unbeaten. And yeah. it was really, I don't know, like I, I understand all the kind of the energy momentum is with Brighton and the crowd's kind of bang for Potter because they feel a little bit let down by him leaving, but also him ripping out the the club's technical structure on his way out. I get that. But then there's a challenge there too for Chelsea. And it's it was it was really disappointing, actually, because I was really looking forward to the game. I love watching Brighton. John talked about his his long-term crush. I think one of my short-term crushes is Karim Mitoma, the Japanese winger that, that Brighton have. He is he's a lovely player. He, he's just he's one of those guys that sort of, when, when he carries the ball, he kind of glides with it and he just unbalances defenders on either side. He's got a really nice touch of pass and weight of pass. But I was kind of looking forward to it as a contest, and it never really developed into one. Just to come back to Matoma, it's it's interesting the way that Brighton are developing players. So Matoma is a player who they bought from, I think it's Kawasaki Frontal in, in Japan, brought him over and then sent him on loan last se- season to Union Sangalan in, Sangalwa, sorry, I should say. Sangalwa, yeah. Um, yeah. In Belgium. And what they've they've done this with loads of players. So they bring them in from smaller leagues where there might be a big step up into the Premier League. They send them away for um, a season, bring them back, and they just seem ready made for the Premier League. So they've done that with a, a number of different players now, and it's just a really uh, decent way of, of developing players. So props to David Weir, I think, is the uh, loans manager over there at the moment. Um, so yeah, they're doing a good job over there. David Weir, yeah, like the ex Scotland defender. Ah, cool. There we go. So let me come back to you for one second because you already mentioned that um, the the Brighton home crowd seemed a little bit more than displeased with um, with Graham Potter. A lot of booing. He was quite keen in the post match interview afterwards, or at least he appeared to have felt that a little bit keenly because he made the point of saying he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. And I sort of agree with him. I mean, why, is it is is it is it okay for it to just be sort of part of the pantomime of football supporters and it's all you know, meant in jest or whatever or is it kind of ridiculous that uh, he was booed like that? Well, there's a different way of looking at it in that, like, uh, yes, it was directed at Graham Potter, but I think what people are raging against is kind of one of the realities and truisms of modern football, which is that as soon as a big club takes a liking or a fancy to something that's shiny, they take it and what's left. Okay, at the moment, De Zerbi looks like he might be a success and stylistically, 
I'm really looking forward to what he might do at Brighton. I think he he has a good chance of building on the work that's been done. At the same time, however, how many times in the past have you seen, right, we're going to take that manager now and uh, everything else can burn as a result because it's not our problem as the big club. And no, I got a lot of sympathy. I, I agree with Graham Potter and that he doesn't really have much to apologize for because, of course, he was going to take that opportunity. For someone like that, with a non-traditional journey through football management, how often are you going to get the opportunity to manage a club like Chelsea to earn what he's likely to earn there, to uh, coach on that sort of stage? I, I get it. But it's okay to be annoyed about it because this is one of the inequalities of the game and that you can buy into a project, you can, goodness, what's it been like to be a Brighton fan in the past couple of years? It must be wonderful to see, mm. based on where the club were, 20 years ago, what they've been through and to see them playing the kind of football and winning the sort of admiration they are. And then because there's been a falling out or a disagreement between the new billionaire owner and the Champions League winning coach, you have to suffer. I get it. It's it's just part of the football and it's it's a horrible thing. But it's um it's just unfortunate that Graham Potter is the target of it. I, I understand that too. Pascal Gross is listed as playing right back in this game. Is that correct? Didn't feel like it. Too, well, this is the thing. So it's one of these things where the team sheet doesn't actually represent what you see in the pitch. Um, yeah. Because there's no... Like, formations are... They don't really exist in a lot of teams now. It's just players in different positions at different phases of play. I think don't say things, that before my next question, JJ, because my next question is that Sterling and Pulisic played at wing back. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about that because it didn't seem to work. I think um, the uh, the fellas on Match of the Day noted also that um, this had been tried in the, in the last sort of three games and had been sort of scrapped. Or maybe that was Mark Kukurea at... Um, left centre-back, but um, uh, something along these lines have been tried in the last few games and then sort of scrapped around half-time or in the second half as it, it wasn't really working. Um, Sterling and Pulisic at wing-back, to me, seems like the sort of thing I would have done on FIFA 10 years ago. Well, is you, it, it, I mean, is it is it that weird or is that, what's the thought thinking behind it? Well, you want to get all your best players on the pitch at the same time. So how do you get that was the, That was my FIFA thinking, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there's, there is like thinking behind it. And the idea should be that if you think you can control the game and I mean, Graham Potter obviously knows quite a lot about Brighton, so he could know what where he could control the game and where he might get um, advantages. So you play Sterling and Pulisic on the on the wings, so they are your wide players to give you width out wide, obviously, which then creates space in the middle, hopefully for your boxman field that they've got there. And it changes from it's a different defensive shape to when they're in attack. Obviously, in defence, you don't really want Raheem Sterling as your your left wing back or your left back, but he's not really. It's Mark Kukurea. So, and the thing you saw them then get um, taken out a little bit was that. This is a team learning how to play Potter's style against one that it already... No, they're, they're deviating from it now. But Kukuri and Chalaba coming very far out of where they're supposed to to try and help overload the midfield part of the, of the pitch. But then that leaves space out wide for someone else. And then maybe Pulisic and Sterling aren't quite aligned with tactically what they're supposed to be doing right now. It's And if you can take advantage of that and you're super motivated, that you can't really get a more motivated team than you would get that Brighton team against Chelsea. Like The manager's coming back, the crowd are right up against it you've got that massive advantage straight away. So you do have, it looks like a team who wants it more against another one. Like Chelsea don't care that much about playing against Brighton. They're not expecting that to be a huge, massive battle. It's all really, yeah. it's basically Potter versus Brighton. It's not really Chelsea. They don't, you know, that doesn't really matter. So I think that gives them a bit of an advantage there. Tactically, when you get these players in, it should mean that you have more of the ball. You've got those great players in attacking positions. And then you've got Chalaba and Kukurea are either side of the central centre-back. So you should sort of be fine. But then, like John's saying, I mean, the first goal, a bit of a stramash in the box. Trossard does really well. Trossard, who's playing as a wing-back under Potter, now playing as a central striker here, with Pascal Gross listed at right-back. Weird. 
and then then two on goals. So it's really kind of unfortunate. So although like XG does show that Brighton are way ahead in this game like, yeah. by quite a lot. It's just a weird, yes. it's just one of those. I think it's just one of those that happens now and again. The wing back thing was really interesting because there's a couple of times, particularly in the first half, where you saw Sterling carry the ball through the middle. Pulisic also, like the XG point is, is valid, but Chelsea had a couple of really good chances. Sanchez made it two really good saves in the first half. Pulisic spooned one wide when he probably definitely should have hit the target. But like, it felt to me initially at least like the wing backs were a kind of a pragmatic approach to dealing with Brighton's strength at wing back. And then Purvis Estepan was probably the best player on the pitch from the left. Like he was the most progressive. Like he was, he was kind of a force in the well, game it, down that side. Thinking, right? So if you play attacking wing backs, but you play yeah. them as wingers, that's what they're, they're not wing backs, they're wingers. It's like that old yeah. um, like Cruyff Ajax team, maybe. So the wingers, are, the wide players are actually just wingers. They're meant to be up top in line with the striker a lot of the time. So you can control the game that way. And how do you want to defend? Is it deeper or do you want to defend higher up the pitch? And if you've got those players up there helping with the press and you've got a box midfield, which is Mount Gallagher, Kovacic and Loftus Cheek controlling the middle of the pitch. In theory, you've got real control there. So you've got a back three with two protecting them. Then the two wide wing backs should really be wingers, which gives you more of an attack, attacking over defence kind of mentality, which may be high risk, but you've got better players. Like Chelsea, Chelsea have much better players than Brighton do. And so they should be able to control it more. And Potter knows roughly how they're going to try and build. So where you can control the game there. But it just takes a couple of little errors for that to um, to fall apart. And then once you're 2-0 down, it's really difficult to then... Because you naturally, the team who's the, the least... The lesser talented team, obviously they're a good team, Brighton, but, you know, Chelsea are better players. So then they can just sit and they can play in a different sort of way against them. It changes the way the game is managed in that. it's It might not work just now with the players you've got at that position, but then you think, like, he was playing Trossard, who is really a forward as a wing-back all the time. That's what Potter was doing. So why couldn't Sterling do that? Why couldn't Pulisic do it? I think they've got a problem with with Sterling insofar as they've just spent £50 million on him. And the big question is, where do you fit him into this team? And we've seen him try to play it. We've seen Potter try to play him as as an outside forward, but obviously the outside forwards that, that... Potter likes to play end up being quite narrow as you've already said like they are playing a box midfield you've got someone like Mason Mount he's really good to play in that sort of situation and and Sterling's usually just played on the other side so yeah I think the idea is is that you drop him into those wing back positions because it allows you to play to his upside a little bit more which is running into space or getting in behind wide players it's just not happening so much for him at the moment whether or not that's because the team aren't building up the way that Potter wants them to and getting into those sorts of situations. I'm really struggling to take you seriously with a skeleton <laughs> hanging off you. I keep looking For listeners, uh, you'll be able to, you won't be able to see this, but you can hear that um, JJ has a skeleton's arm around his shoulder there. <laughs> I got uh, the that's what John... I keep looking up and yes. he's just sitting there innocently looking at me with a skeleton's arm around his shoulder. So I apologise. <laughs> I lost it. Go there. on, Seb. No, it just felt at times like all the points that John's made... Fair. I just wonder whether playing Sterling at wing back is a little bit about if you think about sort of the forward components at Chelsea. So someone like Abamyang, whose tendency is always always to move either from left to right or left to inside or from central positions and kind of drop a little bit wide. What you have with Sterling is someone that's super comfortable getting into into the penalty box. Like if you think about the kind of classic goal he'd score at Manchester City. He was a exclamation point, wasn't he? He would get on the end of moves. And so you've injected that into the formation, but then it feels like you've outthought yourself because as a result of the stuff that you don't have, i.e. the focal point, the big number nine that you you kind of could play around and operate around, um, you need a kind of compensatory piece to accommodate, I don't know, Aubameyang's movement, Havertz's uh, 
yeah, a pretty decent false nine, but he's not a number nine, is he? And he doesn't have the positional tendencies of a number nine. And so you kind of have this betwixt and between situation where Sterling plays as a wing back, but he doesn't offer you the things that mm. you need from it in this game, yeah. which is to kind of restrict someone like Purvis Estepan. Love saying his first name, Purvis. There aren't enough Purvises. Estupanyol. Purvis. Uh, I would the, like to say uh, Averts did a pretty good impression of a number nine with that headed goal, though, didn't he? Congratulations to him. A little bit of housekeeping here from uh, Steve Ankles. David Weir, John, was Brighton's loan manager, but he's now their technical director, being internally promoted when Dan Ashworth left the club for Newcastle. So I hope you can enjoy that little piece of slam-down literature there. What a fool you are for not keeping up with the news. Thanks, Steve Hankles. Moving David on. David Weir would have been the loan manager last season when Mitoma was in Saint-Gilois. So I'm going to take yes. the win on this one. You can't. You don't it's, own me, Steve Hankles. Is that how that's you do right, it, That's how you do it, isn't it? I think that's how you do it. And then you, you, know, you say something about his physical appearance. Um, oh, wow. Leaving space for you. No, no, I'm not going to do that. That's mean. No? That feels like quite a cruel area that the podcast is going into there. Well, I'm going to stand up against him, Joe. (laughs) There he is, though. I just just saw a lovely little shot of him there. Delightful. Anyway, speaking of delightful, Liverpool won. Two Leeds United. Is it delightful? I assume it is for you, John. But let's talk about Leeds now. Deeper, deeper Leeds, John. Let's talk about deeper Leeds because Jesse Marsh, there's an argument to say outside of this game, not doing so well. However, the underlying numbers do suggest that Leeds are actually a little bit unlucky, although you're not so sure about that, are you? Yeah, so I did a video last week just looking at, at where Leeds are at. They've obviously come off the back of, I think, two, was it two points in 24, I think, something available, so not a good run. The big question was, if Leeds' numbers are so decent, and Leeds, Leeds should be around mid-table according to the XG um, data, um, the, the question is, is this just variance? Is this just the happenstance of random luck? Leads are actually fine. And if you give it long enough, as the argument goes, everything will sort itself out in the end. So I had to look at the numbers a little bit to see what was going on. After having already made the point that Leeds have a really interesting play style, which works well against good teams and less well against less good teams. Um, so there's already context there. And yeah, the, what I found when I looked at the numbers is that actually if you start digging into game state, so game state is anything that impacts impacts the game and changes the way that the teams might normally play. So that can be anything from, you know, red, a red card changing the way that, that teams are going to line up or a team being maybe 4-0 up or w- would obviously change the way that they're going to play as well. So actually, yeah. if you look at the the underlying numbers, that Leeds are actually a very average team when they're in an even game state. So when the game is, is, is when the team are drawing, um, they, they're pretty much, I think 17th was where they were at in terms of their expected goal difference. So there's definitely some kind of context going on here. And when when do they play better? What what is it? Uh, which game state is it that's bolstering those underlying general numbers? Yeah. So it's obviously been a small uh, sample size because they've only played, uh, I guess, around that a thousand minutes 12. so far. Yeah. Twelve yeah. hundred minutes. Twelve minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, twelve so, games. I was going to say this season. So yes. So when it when it breaks down, there's obviously like certain game states that they're not in very much so they 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 looked fairly good one nil up but they'd only played 71 minutes in that game state so the other one was when they were two nil down that's when they're at their best in terms of generating xg and obviously if you're two nil down and that's the moment when you're generating your best numbers then obviously uh, you're, you're not in a, in a good situation really so can i uh, interpret then what you're saying into hu- human language uh, if i'm correct is that that obviously when you're two nil down in a game and you're chasing a goal 
you are much more likely to commit more players forward than you ordinarily would approach a game, uh, you know, a nil-nil at the beginning. So you might be likely to create, you know, higher XG chances because you aren't worried about defending as much and you're chasing something. That, so if, if Leeds spend a lot of time at one or two goals down and then create a lot of their, a lot of their XG, high, higher XG chances in those situations, in situations where they're unlikely to then go and actually win the game, that's also not an indication of how they would approach a game from minute zero at nil-nil. Therefore, the higher XG chances they're creating when they're throwing players forward aren't representative of how they would approach a normal game. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's worth saying as well that in terms of sample sizes, the even game state is the game state that leads are in most of the time uh, when they're yeah. playing. Because um, obviously you start off drawing nil-nil. Um, so you're going to be starting off in an even game state. And those are the minutes. So the 600 minutes, I think, of that thousand where leads are in an even game state and their numbers in those situations just don't seem to be very good. And I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that, that leads have a very specific play style, which requires them to attack directly you know when they have possession of the ball they don't have the ability to possess the ball when they're in a in situations so you might want to think right we get to one nil up two nil up we're going to sit on the ball and try and hold it for a little bit longer stop the opposition from having it and if you can't do that if you all you can do is just be direct then it means that okay you're going to be still generating a lot of chances and a lot of dangerous attacking scenarios but you're also more likely to turn the ball over and then have the opposition attack at you as well so I do think there's a game state uh, issue going on here and I think I mean the video itself is arguing that Leeds are good against good teams and, and not so good against not so good teams and, and that was pretty much the way that this one played out. Mm, okay Seb there's another sort of element to Jesse Marsh here in, in his post-match interview he was very buoyant obviously he spent a lot of time emphasizing the unity of the team he shouted we about three times to really emphasize that it was a we not an I uh <laughs> <laughs> to emphasise that it was a we. Sorry, that made me laugh. Um, but uh, you know, also there were players that uh, aggressively hugged him after the game. It, you know, he doesn't seem like a, a manager who's lost the dressing room at all. Like the players seem to like him. Yeah, I'm, I'm always a little suspicious of that stuff because there's a lot of adrenaline. It's a big game. It's a big win at Anfield, last minute winner. So I don't know. I mean, I, I watched an interview with him this morning, which was quite spiky. He was asked about the pressure he was experiencing. I think by Sky's Patrick Davidson. And he was kind of, it was one of those where the uh, the interviewer asked a sort of lighthearted question, was clearly expecting a little bit of a kind of Frank Lampard chuckle before the answer. And it didn't arrive and it became a little bit awkward. And what I find interesting about him at the moment is that he talks about underlying numbers. It's quite rare that, I mean, it's, it's obviously pretty common on a podcast and in, on football Twitter, but to hear a manager start talking about, yeah, but our underlying numbers are good. And I know we've only got, you know, X points and Y games, but, you know, it doesn't really matter. Because, well, not doesn't really matter, but um, I'm going to apply my own context. Yeah. And that's quite a hard sell to a traditional fan. But I found myself nodding long to some of the things he said because he, he made some good points about Leeds game plan. And he made some good points. He sort of made some good diagnostic points about where Liverpool's weaknesses were. And there was one moment of, of I, I felt it was sort of really good coaching at the end where for the goal that won the game, Brendan Aronson presses three different players really, really well within the same sort of 30-second period in the 89th minute of the game. Now, like a lot of people, when we talk about pressing, you think, oh, well, that's just running and getting in someone's face and making sure that you, you know, you're showing effort. Whereas... In this phase, it was just really precise, actually having an effect on the ball, actually having an effect on um, Liverpool's exit. And then as soon as, the, as soon as the ball came back into the Liverpool defensive zone, we all know what happened next. I kind of enjoy the, the, 
sort of the frankness of being able to discuss things like that rather than kind of resort to the uh you know unlucky here and injury that and bad refereeing decision and i i get it like i, I obviously understand also that fans have an emotional response to it but it was um it was interesting to listen to yeah i think it's interesting that he's talking about the underlying numbers and I, i'm not surprised that he's talking about those because that's pretty much the only good thing about the last few months of Leeds united right so everyone who wants this to be the the way that things are going to go in the future are going to have to hang on to those numbers in order to justify Jesse Marsh being there. And I think, again, like that's fine. That's the way that clubs should operate. They should be looking at the underlying numbers. They should be aware of what is going on. Um, but I, like I said, like I say, if you dig into some of the, the caveats behind those, those underlying numbers, then it does sort of paint a slightly different picture. It's an interesting conundrum, right? Because on the field, things don't look great if Leeds are playing non-top six sides. And... Yeah, I, I think it, I just find it interesting that clearly the club are hanging on to those underlying numbers now and they're saying, this is it, like, we are going to trust the numbers and we're going to hope that those numbers start levelling out in terms of results rather than, um, than just performances at this point. And I think in a few games time, we'll have a good sense of whether or not a corner has been turned. Um, I'm not at the point where I think that corner has been turned because this very much fits my narrative. My narrative is that we will be good against good sides. But it's those games against smaller teams where we really need to be picking up a lot of points to stay up. I mean, if you look at the numbers now, we're a point above the relegation zone. We have picked up 50% of our points so far against Chelsea and and Liverpool. I just don't think that's a particularly sustainable way of getting points in the Premier League. So I still think there's a lot of work to do. But yeah, interesting to hear that the club are hanging on to those underlying numbers. Here's a thought, though. If you were to uh, beat every big six team, both home and away, that would be 38 points, wouldn't it? Or 36. That's historically, that's enough to stay <laughs> up. So if you lost to everyone else, Leeds, and you just beat the top six, uh, home and away, that would be fine. But Seb, go ahead. Well, no, it's just a, it's quite an interesting problem to have because if you're good against top six sides, for a side like Leeds at the moment, those are the games when you're going to be televised and those are the games which are going to attract the biggest neutral audience. So you have one group of people who have one perception of Leeds, like people who perhaps, you know, watch the Liverpool game or watch the Chelsea game. And then a group of fans who watch every game religiously and that is the majority because you're not going to, well, you have two or three games uh, every, every two months or so against like, televised teams teams that kind of attract the nation's attention the world's attention and then you struggle through and try and preach about well underlying numbers this and in games like that it's a very difficult argument to win in that way yeah it's, it's just a kind of a modern footballism i'm in that kind of modden football ranty mood today yeah. sorry no i like it i like it jj yeah, okay. uh, liverpool lean into it i will lean into it thank you Seb. liverpool uh, it sort of feels like we're approaching the point at which it is my job to say are we supposed to talk about Jurgen Klopp? I don't, for the record, hey, hey, for the record, I love that guy and I don't think we should do that. But it does feel like it's uh, the appropriate time for me to start suggesting that maybe that's a... (laughs) (laughs) Well, this, I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit before, but basically... All teams, you know, go through like cycles, and the team tends to be about a three-year cycle. And Guardiola's managed to keep his team fresh and everything by bringing new players in and changing it. And Alex Ferguson used to do that, where he would, um, after a bit of success, he would start to break up the team on purpose, just hack it to bits, so it becomes something new, and you you retain these, uh, you retain the intensity and the attention to detail that you need. And what Klopp spoke about recently was the problems they've had. I mean, there's loads and loads of problems. They're all 
basically defensive, which is caused by not putting enough pressure higher up the pitch. They're pressing far less than the attacking third. In fact, the numbers, uh, last time I saw it, they were, last season they were first or something like that, very close to first in like attacking pressures. So attack, pressures in the attacking third. So, you know, so they're winning the ball very high up the pitch or they're playing pressure very high up the pitch. This season, it's a marked difference around about mid-table. And that's enormous, which means that inevitably you get more um, attention on, on the, back, the back line. And then uh, without wanting to pick and Trent, Trent Alexander-Arnold, like he is being exploited every single time he plays. The first goal, like, sure enough, it's Joe Gomez. Like, he doesn't look up before he hits the pass. I think it's an accident and it could, it's so easy for this to happen, just not looking up. But you know where, roughly where your teammates are. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, what happens is that Leeds go from back to front very quickly down the left wing. Alexander-Arnold steps forward to try and press the, the left winger, but I think that's a d- deliberate decoy to then bring him out of position so that Joe Gomez has to then cover the right-back position, which has been happening all season long. It creates a big gap between the right centre-back and the left centre-back. And so Alexander-Arnold's taking out the late game a little bit. Shouldn't matter because Gomez has control of the situation and then passes back across his own goal from the base near the touchline, the, the throw-in line, and, uh, and it catches out the goalkeeper, and that's how the, uh, Rodrigo scores. It's a, it's a real mistake, and Klopp says that's just an accident. You can't... Um, allow for that but that's a mistake caused by Gomez's error but it's also um, tactical and teams keep doing this thing so like if you uh, pull the right back wide and out of position like Alexander does as an Arnold does then the inside midfielder the left inside midfielder can then run into that space that's left go out wide so you've rotated and then they've got they can create things and it was just a mistake that caused them that one but you go through, back through all these other games against Napoli when they got done 4-1 I think it was 4-1 wasn't it 4-0? 4-1 Napoli always focusing on that left side. Same thing, Kravatskilia was would be taking them on. It was always Gomez 1v1 with them and Alexander Arnold's the right back. It's because they're pulling them out of position with other things. It's quite clever what other teams are doing now. But as Klopp has said and Pep Linders has said, everyone knows how Liverpool play. They figured it out long ago. Everyone knows it, but they were able to they weren't able to stop it before because they were so intense and they were so good that teams could go through them. Uh, sorry, that Liverpool just go keep going through them, they win the ball high up the pitch, and it becomes like incredibly difficult to play against. Because you just know they're going to come at you. Like Watford beat them once, I think, and they just they made it like a back six or seven to block out all the wide space, limit them to, to the middle, and they hit them on the counter. Was it Aston Villa once did them like seven nil or some some weird result? Seven two in the COVID season. Like it, it can happen. These sorts of things. It's kind of random. But one thing you could say is that losing Sadio Mane makes a bit of a difference. It's maybe just to the eye test, but he would often pick and choose when to press but his, t- his sense of timing of it was perfect in the same way that Firmino his sense of timing of when to attack space and when to drop into space is like he, in- he's incredible at doing it so now they change their system to be more of like a 4-4-2 diamond um, which defends sort of like a front three from the very front but they're letting people pass them either side Nunes is not as good at pressing as you maybe want him to be just yet he's not Manny and Salah still lets people down that right hand side and you've got Harvey Elliott behind him as the right side of midfielder so Elliott when you look at his profile in FB ref in case anyone's not sure exactly how he plays he's a very progressive ball player but you can carry the ball he's really neat and tidy they compare him in the top like players a lot like him Pedri oh <laughs> he's one that comes up a couple of other players um, make him similar to like Dominic Sobislai like a really talented Hungarian player uh, also Martin Odegaard also Stuart Armstrong weirdly but ignore that one not a really Jordan talented Henderson, Scottish though. player <laughs> yeah, for people yeah, yeah. who don't I don't know how Armstrong get in there. But basically, Elliot is not as good. I think we've covered this before. He's not as good at covering the right space as Henderson has been in the past. So what Liverpool struggle with again, as Klopp has talked to a lot, is injuries. So they've had loads of injuries and players not fit. And because of injuries, he's had to play players who aren't quite fit, which then means that they're playing too much in a position they shouldn't be doing. And then it means that they are susceptible to injuries as well. And there's a knock-on effect back down. Also, Van Dijk has been absolutely useless this season. He's one of the best centre-backs I've ever seen. 
And he's doing weird things. The second goal that they concede, which is the one that Klopp said that can't happen, you can see Match of the Day did a really good job in it. I love their analysis and Match of the Day 2 especially as well. He should be much tighter instantly to where the, the, the lad that scores is. But he keeps standing off everyone, like giving them like two or three yards. I don't know why. He's a well, different let me ask you this. Yeah, well, let me ask you this then, JJ. I mean, like, we, so we've covered a lot of these issues before. They seem to be consistent throughout the season so far. It's difficult to note areas that are improving, and yet there sort of remains this expectation at some point that Liverpool will just snap back into it. Steve Hankey makes the the valid point that uh, Liverpool currently mid table. You know, I mean, forget about challenging for the title. At, at what point in the season, presumably, it's the halfway point, do the club start to think, well, we need to target top four? because we need Champions League football. There, there is a scenario where if Liverpool do not improve in the way that they're expected to, that they don't finish in the top four. Yeah, but I can't see a world where they get rid of Klopp in that because you know that he knows how to turn it into a winning team. Like He's not going to lose a dressing room. They all, they all know exactly how good he is. It's individual error caused by tactical problems with the Alexander-Arnold thing's really complicated to deal with. He's clearly a great man-manager. Recruitment has been excellent. Whether that's all him or whether that's to do with um, other people in the club that brought him in, I don't know exactly the answer to that one. But you keep Klopp in because he can get you to that next level. It's just at the end of a cycle. They'll build a new team now. Maybe the recruitment they've got in isn't exactly what they needed it to be. They've had loads of injury problems. A lot of this, I mean, Liverpool fans might get wound up with it, but you just need to give them time and it, there'll be a reset at halfway and yeah, went, after, went, after the World Cup, that's the When thing, it went wrong it? from at Borussia Dortmund, when it all went wrong, uh, please correct me if I'm very wrong here, but I think there was a winter break, and after the winter break, they were much better. Yeah, they they made a big thing of that winter break, if I remember correctly. Because they, the Winterpause, John. Yes, that's right. They, they, I think they, they sort of used it as a point where they're like, if we can get to this point, then everything will be fine. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. If you look around the league, though, like I think this is really relevant and I think it will only emerge in time. Antonio Conte at Spurs has talked about how there are periods of games where he feels his side can't compete in the way that he wants them to tactically. They have to kind of sit, restrict chances and then dominate physically in the last half an hour. Klopp talked about this at the beginning of the season mm. about conserving energy and managing the conditioning of players. I know it's a really tough sell. I don't expect people not to respond to poor results, especially losing to Leeds at home. The reality is that once the World Cup's over and once we're able to see this this season in isolation for what it actually is and the challenges that that it encompasses, I think that contextualizes the things in a, in a yeah. really interesting way because you just, no manager has ever had to do this before. Like even previously, if you think about kind of the summer break, you think about how regularly the Champions League games have to come, how little coaching time there actually is during the season. That's a really big thing, especially if you've got new players. Like if you're trying to, not just work on set pieces, but team shape and like the kind of basics of you know positional play. Or if you're trying to if you're trying to embed a Darwin Nunez into the team and you've only got what two days between games each week, it's incredibly difficult to do. Yeah. Um and once we get to March and April, and if these things are still happening, then okay, sure, there's a conversation. But I feel like it's a little bit of a tricky one to, to to judge people for that right now. Let me tell you, Seb, I went to the opera at the weekend because that's exactly <laughs> the kind of person that I am. I saw a, a wonderful... That is you. Like mm. This is kind of what you do. Like I, To be honest, on, on a weekend, sometimes you'll phone me after you come back from the opera mm. and I just think... That's sake, right. Indeed, I was at the alone. ballet the week before, but I was at the opera this <laughs> yeah. weekend, uh, sat in a box, of course, I wouldn't sit with the ordinary scum, and um, I uh, was watching the uh, <laughs> the opera Tosca, and I thought to myself while you were just talking, well, indeed, if the actor who plays the role of Tosca 
and the fantastic job she did, were to leave halfway through the season, they wouldn't just bring in another Tosca and put them on stage, uh, you know, sans rehearsals. Know what I'm saying? Everybody needs a little bit of time to adjust. And right now, Darwin Nunez is is a fabled Tosca. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> was that was that a valuable analogy? Yeah, but was it worthwhile it, it, it taking because- that journey? If you put a new actor into that position and then all you did night after night was say, right, well, your performances in front of the live audience are okay, but I'm going li- to issue live corrections, okay, every night. And all, all the opportunity you really have to learn from them is when you go back onto the stage the next night. It's quite difficult. You know, you don't get any kind of empty theater time or, you know, time with your castmates to think, oh, how about this? And am I doing that okay? And let's build some chemistry and let's become friends. Don't get quite as much of that now in football, yeah. especially not this season. Maybe a goalkeeper up front. Maybe indeed. I think what's what's really interesting for me about Liverpool is it's the it's the press it's the off ball stuff that doesn't work at the moment, and they've just spent mm. they've spent the whole season just experimenting with the press. So I think they they start obviously in previous seasons they pressed out of a four three three and it ends up looking pretty much like a four four two because one of the eights will push forward. They tried that this season it hasn't worked. They switched to a four four two allegedly to try and get Mohamed Salah in. The, um, in the central space a little bit more. Um, that hasn't worked. And now they've gone to this sort of 4-4-2 diamond press as well. I think the issue is definitely that they can't control games enough in the way that they used to, to be able to build on them in an attacking sense. And so they're in a situation where not only are they not... Because one of the things that Liverpool did really well in the past was they were a really good counter-pressing side. So if they turned the ball over, they would win the ball back quickly and then they would be able to spring counter-attacking moments very, very quickly. If you look at their high regains numbers this season, they're much, much lower. So not only are you losing the ability to control the game, so you're defending better from the front, you're also losing a really big upside that you had from having a really nice transitional side that can score goals um, when you when you counter-press back. So they're losing both sides of those things. It just makes them a lot more average. Like The, the underlying numbers are good, but they're not really good and I think that's the moment they're at now because the pressing doesn't work they actually look so much worse than you might actually think so it's easy to sort of look at players and be like this player needs to do better here this player needs to do better here but I do think that the issue is is with the system it's to do with intensity as you're saying the lack of ability to be able to cause the sorts of problems they've been doing in the past the big question is like how do you how do you overcome that is it is it bringing in better personnel is it like you say, having that nice winter break, which might allow a lot of them to, to sort of pick up a little mm. bit fitness, more fitness-wise. But it's just something we see with high-intensity pressing sides is that you get three seasons and then it falls to pieces. And, and you yeah. know, we've seen Liverpool go through those rebuilds. They're going to have to go through that rebuild again. And I think that's where they're at. John, I only ever want to hear you say Winterpause, okay? I don't, I don't ever want to hear you say the okay. word winter break Winterpause. ever again. Thank you, thank you. Now, uh, we'll have a break now, but first let me read uh, word for word the stuff that Steve Hankey has written in the plan here for you so we can all hear the quality that Steve Hankey, uh, his addition, his contribution to the podcast. Tosca is an opera separated into three acts, full stop, says Steve Hankey. Unai Emery is in his second act of management in the Premier League. We'll talk about how we think it will go after a break. Let's have a break now. Thanks, Steve Hankey. Thankles, Hankles. Thankles, Hankles. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm Tony Jameson, the new host of the Football Manager Show, brought to you by The Athletic. Football Manager has quite frankly ruined my life, but I'd be completely lost without it. And if those words resonate with you, our podcast will be right up your street with FM23's release inching closer and closer. Every week, myself and Aaron Falloon, aka RDF Tactics, 
take a deep dive into our most recent saves, we speak to the makers of the game about how to crack it and take on wacky community challenges suggested by our loyal listenership. So if that sounds like a bit of you, make sure to subscribe to the Football Manager Show wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Okay, okay, we've returned from a lovely break. Now, let's discuss Unai Emery, the new manager of Villa. John. <laughs> what do we, What can we what can I who who is this man who was here before? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting with Unai Emery because he has a really good coaching record when he manages teams in Spain has a really good um, record coaching teams who are sort of I suppose mid-table gets a lot out of them he has a reputation for getting Europa League uh, finals and titles there as well but he has had these stints abroad so he had a time at Spartak Moscow in Russia went really badly after he'd been at Valencia and done well there goes back to Sevilla does really well there with them in terms of the Europa League as well that gives him the job at Paris Saint-Germain which I guess in fairness no one really excels at that job because of the the um the vagaries of being the Paris Saint-Germain manager um goes to Arsenal and interestingly like doesn't do too badly I don't think um he was only I think a point off Champions League spots in that season they finished fifth and then after that uh, Arteta comes in and has two eight place eight eighth place finishes mm. um, so like relatively speaking had he been given more time might have gone differently but obviously lost the fan base and so that became unworkable goes back to Villarreal was really impressed there as well so he's leaving Spain again to to come to another country so I think for me the big question is how well will he will he do uh, in in this stint in the Premier League, and and whether or not maybe Villa are a club that is maybe fitting the profile of the sides that he does better at, maybe than some of the other sides he's had outside of of Spain. Well, you heard John say it, JJ. The big question is, what's he going to do at Villa? Well, and your big answer, please. Well, there's well, not an awful lot he can do straight away because he's got no time to coach them. Basically, because there's a game every I don't know. You'll have like three training days a week where you can actually work with them. Uh, and you put your best players on the pitch. And the best players, I think they had probably their best team on the pitch against uh, Newcastle and got done 4-0. So there'll be lots of things to tweak. But uh, Villa have a very medium team just now. They spent money, but like you have to spend big money just to get, like, get small gains now. Uh, I mean, 100 million might get you one or two extra places at the table and then you have to have things go your way. You can't sign a centre-back. You're building your back line around get injured for like most of the season straight away. That's just really unfortunate. Danny Ings is still a good goal scorer. 
Wally Watkins is a decent player. Emi Buendia, a decent player. Coutinho hasn't really been able to play the way we saw him at Liverpool for a long time. That's not the same guy anymore. Uh, Leon Bailey, decent player. Like the midfield's okay as well. Douglas Luiz, watered by Arsenal, he's a decent player. But then you see errors by Tyrone Mings have let them uh, concede goals recently, which aren't great. Uh, and he wasn't meant to be playing really this season. It was meant to be, um, I've forgotten the guy's name, the centre-back, Diego Carlos. Thank you very much for that one. So, like we saw the difference with like Steven Gerrard uh, wasn't hugely impressive in in Scotland. He think he won one out of like nine trophies he could have won or something like that like that and really should have done. I mean he had a couple of unlucky cup finals where they dominated games, but let's see. They didn't he didn't win, basically it was a problem. And uh Michael Beale was the architect there, we talked about this before. So when when he lost Beale, he lost a lot of the things he wanted to be able to do, he tried to replace him, whatever. Gary McAllister has always been an assistant manager. But they played in a way that was making it very dull to watch. Uh Villa have players who can play in a in a better way, but it's hard to play in an expansive attacking way if you don't have players that are better than everyone else's and you're not full of confidence. So I think we'll see Emery come in and do... like His, his team, sometimes they look really boring to watch, especially in Europe. Uh, they're quite dull sometimes, but they're very pragmatic and get the job done. Uh, and I'm, I don't think any manager wants to play boring football. Like everyone wants to play attacking, expansive football. It's the it's the way of every club in the world ever of all time. Every club has a way, and it's always attacking, expansive football. Now, Emery wants to win games. He knows how to win in knockout tournaments as well. Now, I wonder whether like the reason he does so well in Spain, as opposed to um, like when he goes to places abroad, is communication, because that seems to be one of the big problem when he was at Arsenal, and it you know exemplified by people mocking him for the way he would. Uh, do press conferences but I remember him being quite difficult to understand sometimes now obviously I don't speak Spanish this guy speaks English and I think other languages uh, that's not his first language so well done to that but then if you can't communicate your ideas completely across to a group of players that's very that's very complicated and I think you see like people were talking about Diego Simeone at Atletico maybe come to England at one point and do that I don't know, because a lot of the stuff he does with the players is so motivational and so specific. That Cl- Klopp talked about this, JJ. Really? There's a really good bit in Rafa Honigstein's book, um, Bring the Noise, when he's meeting FSG for the first time over in New York, I think. And one of his big concerns is whether his communication, whether his motivational abilities, whether they're going to transfer, whether they're going to kind of survive his learning of the English language. Yeah. So it's a very relevant point. Yeah, it's 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 really complicated. And you don't want to sound like you're... Um, I don't know, like the whole thing, the whole thing that started when you said good evening at the start of press conferences, right? So he would say that, and that became a kind of a meme for him. But it was quite funny him saying that because no one really says hello, like oh, good evening, and thanks for having me at a press, you know, a, a yeah. press conference. What do they call them? Post match interviews, stuff like that. Yeah, pre match, that sort of thing. Um, There's a good Stilberto uh, Twitter thread. Tim Tim Stillman, good Twitter thread on this. Right. Uh, if you want to, if you want to read more about it, I think it's. A, you make a very good point, uh, uh, JJ. That here's someone who speaks a, an additional language to their mother tongue, and uh, you barely even speak English, do you? So it's like you know that's your main that's your main one. Uh, yeah, and you can't and even, even pronounce well. words correctly. Like I, don't I can't understand. even talk good. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. A nice <laughs> bit of regionalism for the podcast. Yes. There, uh, just to clarify, I don't think that. I think JJ's English is is excellent. <laughs> And, uh, I've been I, speaking it a lot recently. I do like. I love the uh, the Scottish accent as well. Yes, I do. I do. I do, I do like it. I didn't mean any of the things I just said. You mentioned Arsenal there before, uh, JJ. Arsenal five nil Nottingham Forest. What a big result! Shame I couldn't watch it on the TV though. Seb, did you enjoy it in your other country where you pay almost no money to watch all the football that I can't watch for paying all of my money here in the country where the football's happening in? Hey, what now? 
Yeah, it actually surprised me when I moved over. I mean, obviously, the first thing you benefit from is there's no Saturday blackout for English football. There's no Saturday blackout at all. So I can watch the the 3 p.m. kickoffs. But also, and these are rough estimates because they seem to vary, but I pay about 45 pounds, 45 euros, sorry, a month for my Sky subscription. That's all the Premier League and Bundesliga games, with the exception of a couple of Bundesliga games, which are on the zone, which also carries all the European football. Italy, Spain, France, like all the major leagues, but area division on there as well. I think I save about 50, 55 euros a month on what I used to spend. Oh. And you get all the football. It's not even just that it's, you, you pay less. I get it all. Get it all. I, get it all. I, I, I think when you leave England or when you spend some time with people who are used to a different football culture on television, the idea that you're blocked out of certain games is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. One of the things that John Football gets really right is that the scheduling of Zweider Bundesliga games and Bundesliga games are in slots that don't overlap. Yeah. So you don't have a situation where, for instance, if I wanted to watch a Hamburg or St. Pauli game, then I have to not watch a Bundesliga game. Yeah. So ordinarily across a weekend, there is a sort of a tea time Zweider Bundesliga game, a late Bundesliga game, a lunchtime Saturday Zweider Bundesliga game, and so on and so forth throughout the weekend. Yeah. So you actually get the, top of the proper time slots and also you get every single game. Every single game that's played in those two divisions in Germany is on television every single week. Can I, can I make um, the point, Seb? You, know, you said, you said uh, already, you, when, you, when you move somewhere else, you start to realise how ridiculous it is that you don't get it. The reason I don't like it is, you know, you've just used Germany as an example, where famously fan engagement in football is very high and positive. And the fact that all the Bundesliga games are on television hasn't made a difference to that, right? So that, that's because as a result of, of the smart scheduling, like you said, not impossible for that to happen. Here we should acknowledge that there are more leagues in England. And that's often a thing which is cited as a, as a problem is that there are, you know, four professional tiers and below that there's still non-league and there's all these other considerations is what they would say. But the thing that frustrates me about it is that these decisions were taken by just random dudes decades ago, like on, on the basis of n almost zero information. And the, like, I'm, these are, I'm not saying these are the, exactly the same people, but similar decisions taken earlier than that. Oh, uh, football, not for women, decided by similar type of people. Or, you know, like uh, uh, other stupid things that uh, there's no, there's no, there seems to be no, like, you know, desire to, 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 have another look at these things that were decided, you know, years and years and years ago in entirely different scenarios by people who were skeptical of technology or skeptical of uh, equality or, you know, and yet we just, we hold them up as they are these. Uh, well, there's a big thing now, Joe, with like club specific um, output. So like Scottish Premiership, I think they just signed a deal for like until 2029 or something like that. It's just as a load of stuff is starting to happen. I think it's probably inevitable that Amazon or Apple or someone, Google, will end up buying all the rights and because every, everything's changed now you can watch on your phone we all know what mobile phones are and how iPhones work but then so that's one thing and they'll they've got loads of cash reserves where they can do that sort of thing but like in Scotland it might work so Wrexham's interesting as well like the way they you know they were talking about wanting to have that model where they can output through their own club thing so it, everyone can watch every single game and it might get to the point where in the future that's what happens that every club has their own individual output and it's a bit of a thing in Scotland at the moment because obviously Celtic and Rangers get the, the vast 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 majority of views and bring the most eyes to that entire league so but it, in Sky they have the rights to it Sky Sports in in Scotland have the rights to all the games but they don't use all the games that they have rights to <laughs> so there, there's games that go just unused during that entire season because 
I mean, frankly, people don't want to watch Dundee United versus Hibs. Like, they just don't. The numbers are so small. And I've seen the numbers. They are really small compared to what you get against Rangers and Celtic. So you're actually better off showing something else in that time slot. Yeah. The amount of eyes you get onto it from that other thing, which is another weird thing, because maybe it'd be better for the clubs if they were, then had their own individual bit. Because they still get eyes on it, but it's just not as much as you get for other things. Sure. Well, because also, like, like my formative experiences with the game were in the stadium. And no matter whether I agree with it or not, like over time, future generations, like it matters how much television coverage a team gets. Because if you say, for instance, you're a distance supporter, you live in a different continent, your decision or your level of engagement with a, a team is going to be dictated by how easy it is to watch the team itself. You can't say to someone now, given the choices and Netflix and, and, and given the kind of the alternatives that you have now across a weekend or a, you know, a, a Tuesday or Wednesday night, you can't say that your only interaction with the team is going to be when you go through the turnstiles and take a seat. And like I, I, I do think one of the key differences, um, I won't speak for Scotland because I, I don't know enough about Scottish football, but the difference between England and Germany in terms of football is agency for fans. In England, you can have a situation where a TV company schedules Bournemouth against Manchester United at eight o'clock on a Monday night. And people on Twitter complain about it and everyone gets upset about it. And people talk about how much money it costs them and nobody listens. Never really makes any difference. Like nobody actually pays any attention. In Germany, the fan is a stakeholder, quite literally, because of 50 plus one. And so you cannot do, first of all, you have the organization of the time slots, which are predetermined. Um, but also you cannot, you cannot distort the game in quite the same way. You cannot look after kind of commercial interests beyond a certain point before you start feeling some pushback. And that kind of control, that sort of agency guards against or cracks back against some of the things that Joe's been describing, which is quite right. Like you get people with opinions about the game 60 years ago, like can't show this because it will damage this. Okay, there's no evidence to suggest that. And yet still... I think about the thing you said once, Seb, about like why there's. This is actually part of the the TIFO book, a chapter in the TIFO book. Why are there eleven players on a football team? There's no reason. There just is, like because it was decided a hundred <laughs> years ago, and now it's just like that forever. Why are goals the size they are, despite the fact that like the average height of people has changed dramatically over the last one hundred years? There's no reason. They just are because they always have been, and this kind of thinking. It just drives me insane, the idea that there is, like, I'm sure there is a desire to to, 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 to look at it again from people within various organizations. And I'm, I don't mean to hold uh, specific people to, to account over it. I just think it, fr- it frustrates me when something like this happens, the Arsenal Forest game on a Sunday. We know the reason for it is because the, the game that was supposed to be televised then was moved to Saturday. There is, there is a reason as to why. It doesn't, it's, not, you know, it's not an unusual thing that there's a 2 p.m. game on a Sunday that isn't shown. It's just normally that there would be another one that, that is shown. But every time this happens, it does, it does bring these sorts of issues to light. I wish that there was like a concerted attempt to, to, to look at this again, to try to find smart smarter uh, you know solutions to it as they have done in germany we appreciate the point of course like we said before that there, that there are more considerations here there are more professional leagues there's more non-league football there's, there is their argument would be that there is more to consider than there would be in some other other european countries but i don't think that means that it's impossible and also this the starting point isn't neutral that's the issue like you know that their worry would be all oh, to change something now might make something worse I think what's happening is already bad. I, I don't care if there's a different kind of bad. Let's have a different kind of bad and see how it goes. But Joe, also like it, it's 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 bigger than that as well because it's like you know, how many times this season have we seen fixtures either moved or played in slots, which mean that away supporters quite literally cannot get home on the train that night. 
It's not outrageous. Like it's not even about change. It's about thinking. It's just about thinking, right? The train network in England is shit. Sorry, it is. I'm not saying the German one is much better. It's actually, you know, fallen off to. I'm not being that guy. It's just, it's bad. It's overpriced. It costs an awful lot of money to go from one end of the country to another. The train fans in this country um, are going to be furious <laughs> with you now, Seb. Do it. Do it. Because, it, and, and yet, no one ever takes any of these things into consideration. Like, okay, mm. I'll maybe get a hotel. Well, because you were driven in a Rolls Royce, weren't you? That was pulled <laughs> I, by I did. And then also, horses. I, when, when I say I went to the game, like a helicopter kind of flew above the pitch and just dangled me above the center circle. Like it's, it's like the, it's like a kind of very lo-fi version of that Mission Impossible scene when, when, he, yeah. when he infiltrates the, it was like that. You were the precursor but, to the spider cam. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, just but, like a imagine, <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> imagine imagine the cost like if you're a father and you want to take your daughter your son uh, but who's whose fault is this though because like it's not like the broadcasters they have a product that they want to sell and like for the 2000 away fans that are traveling it doesn't really matter to them because they're gonna get like maybe 300,000 mm-hmm. views actually the tv views are not as big as you think they are in the uk it's weird so yeah. they're, they're looking at that and they're part of their schedule like they're not they're not thinking oh what if oh there's a little boy there he won't be able to get home in time they're not thinking that look i want to watch the football and i don't care yeah. what anybody else needs or wants this is about me <laughs> and what i can legally watch well, in the thing home. there are ways to watch these games no 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 there are no, no of course, ways i mean JJ. i wish there were there, is zero if there were that would be a good thing and but there should be a point where yes. it, the ways that don't exist to watch those do exist legally <laughs> <laughs> okay we have to move on and i believe we're moving on to a break as you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Yes, another 10 minutes of... uh, of, uh, What's that, John? You want to go home? Nothing. That's right. Now, no, listen. Nothing. No one ever said when you started to work at Tifo that it was going to be easy. You know. Actually, I think I did. I think I did say that several times. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I said that. Juventus. Let's discuss Juventus ever so briefly. There. Yes. Who wants to do this? I don't know where I am in the plan. It's Seb. Seb. Juventus out of the Champions League group stages for the first time since the 2013-14 season. There is a scenario here after their 3-4 uh, loss to, to Benfica that they don't even make Europa League. It's unlikely, but it's possible that they don't mm-hmm. make Europa League. What on earth is going on with, with Allegri? Is it time? Is it done? What's going to happen? 
Very difficult because it's not quite that definitive, Joe, because sacking Allegri is a very expensive business and Juventus are not Sacking well. Allegri is on his way. Yeah. <laughs> no? But also, uh, and this is from the excellent Swiss Ramble on Twitter, he wrote uh, a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, that uh, at the time, Juventus's wage bill was 100 million euros more than any other side in Serie A. Now, um, in the in between 12 months, they've obviously reduced that. They've sold a few players. They've offloaded guys like Bentancourt, um, Kuliseski's on loan at Spurs, and he'll eventually join there permanently. But Dusan Vlavic has gone there. Rabio is still there. Chesney is still there. Still some big earners there. And added to which, they're probably not going to... Well, they're not going to win Serie A this season. Napoli look absolutely fantastic if you haven't watched them. Na- Napoli do. yet to lose a game. 1-10, yeah. drawn uh, two. Osman and uh, Cavaradonna. As great video about Napoli up um, on Tifo look, IRL just now. You listen to there the podcast. Is, go and have a look at that um, for Napoli-based propaganda. But Juventus obviously going to be denied the Champions League revenue, maybe denied the Europa League revenue. Maybe they don't re-qualify for the Champions League. All of a sudden that wage bill and the players who are still employed there is a problem. You're going to need to do more cost-cutting after the World Cup. It's a very serious issue. And I don't think I'd I'd push and blame in one single place. I think there's been some bad recruitment. I think there's some individual accountability within the playing squad. Uh, I think Allegri's return has been, I mean, to say say the least, really, really underwhelming. I think the more concerning thing is, though, I'm not quite sure what the road back is. Because if you look around Italy... Yes, I know Juventus have been without Chiesa, but Chiesa will come back in January, but he's not going to be who he was before he got injured immediately. Right. So that's another probably six months down the line. Um, Napoli looked great. I think Roma under Mourinho have improved a little bit as well. Atalanta actually had a really good weekend as well. It's tricky. It's tricky. Agnelli, I think, I, I think Agnelli probably isolated Juventus with the Super League stuff to, to a certain degree, uh, and that's a problem. But um, yeah, it's a funny old situation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for that update. One more update before we end today, and it was a as it was a written in David Ornstein's column on the Athletic this morning. There is a scenario in which Lionel Messi ends up at Inter Miami. I'm reading from uh, David's piece now. Reports suggest PSG will push hard to extend his contract. He's also been linked with Inter Miami CF and a return to Barcelona. The most advanced of those options is understood to be Inter Miami to the extent that the Major League Soccer franchise now expect Messi to arrive and hope that he will sign. In the coming months, apparently discussions have been uh, ongoing for a couple of years, and there is increased com- inco- uh, increased confidence that the proposed transfer will materialise. Now, we guess we're kind of I don't really know. I don't know. Now I'm saying it out loud. I'm not sure what I have to say about it, John. But uh, you know, Messi in America does it get more Hollywood? Messi in America. Yeah, <laughs> these Americans need to need to tidy because it's messy in America. What do you think, John? Um, he wants to go home. Look at him. <laughs> Can I say, I, I, he'll not. He'll not go to America. Will he? he'll go to Barcelona? I just can't. They'll find a way to get him. But I just don't think. Also, he's playing. Man, he's almost like the best mm. as I've ever seen him. He's a slightly bit slower. He's fucking amazing. Have you seen him this season? It's ridiculous the stuff he's yeah. doing. He's, he's, he's good, so, is he? Like I, I mean, he's my favorite player of all time. He's the best player of ever all time. But he's so good. I feel like we spend we spend all our time talking about Ronaldo when Messi's just out there, just still being great. Mm. And it's, it's almost it, like it's but he's in France. Do you know what it is? So <laughs> no, like, I love the US yeah. office, and I didn't watch the last ever episode for for years because I didn't want it to end. This sounds really stupid, but I didn't want to watch because then it would end. You know that there'd be a final point to it. Otherwise, it just existed forever in my mind, and in a way, because it's on uh, Netflix, or whatever. And time is not linear; it never ends. Really, it's always there, available. But 
Uh, the thing with uh, with Messi is that I don't watch him as much as I should, even though I know I should watch him because it's almost as if I watch him like, oh, what? That might be the last time I get to watch him. Obviously, I won't. I'll get a few more years. But it's one of the most sure. special little creatures have ever existed. I have a habit of going to see sports people who I really love and and I make an effort of going to see them because I'm like, oh, you never know. It's going to be the last time you can see them. And when I do, they they just play really badly the time <laughs> I did it. I did the same with Ronnie O'Sullivan. But it was this was like five years ago and he's still going strong, obviously. But I went along and he just got yeah. battered by Mark Allen in the in the in the midfield. Whatever it was. <laughs> in the midfield, yeah. He was all over the place. Um, and then I went to see Messi and ended up watching Rodri in the Man City midfield because he was more impressive yeah. to me. So I have a really- O'Sullivan would definitely be a similar position to well, Messi on the football pitch, I think. He'd probably play off the right. I could see him on in a wide yeah. area. He's, he's he does a lot of running, doesn't he? He goes so in the, half, the attacking half spaces, and I think because he's very very two footed, I would imagine. <laughs> but he would get sent off a lot, I reckon. I feel like, or even just walk off himself. He'd just do something that he didn't like and be like, "This is so bad." Maybe more like a Zidane type. He's hmm. got a bit of menace in him. Well, let's end on a note similar to this. Uh, I was going to say I went to see the um, the, the I went to see Moon Age Daydream, the the, uh, the, the to- David the Bowie Tosca. documentary. Over well, that, I saw that as well, John the Tosca. But I, I also saw the, the Moon Age Daydream, the, the David Bowie documentary. Very good, very fun. But I was watching him in the documentary footage in the seventies, all dressed up as Ziggy Stardust, singing in front of all these people. And I remember thinking, oh, I've never seen anything like that in real life. That's a shame. I've never seen anyone at the top of their game. You know, I've seen big stars of the music and uh, acting and stuff, but I've always I sort of seen them on the way down, or you know, so. so I'm wondering, uh, JJ, John, Seb, what's the what's the most like peak kind of uh, I don't know zeitgeist thing that you have seen in your lives? Oh, I like that question. Yeah, I bet the other two will want some time to think of it. I know straight away it's gonna be messy. <laughs> I saw messy. Uh, so it is. It is messy. Is as yeah. You can choose anything. I've seen him play twice. I've seen him play for Argentina versus Croatia at Upton Park. Weirdly. <laughs> And uh, oh. it was amazing. Every time he gets the ball, if you haven't seen Messi play, just do everything you can to try and see him. Because the whole crowd, it, you feel it. You feel him on the ball. It's so odd. It, it's, everyone sort of rises. It's amazing. You just feel like mm. excitement whenever he gets it. And I saw him play for mm. Barcelona as well. And uh, Pedro scored a bicycle kick. It was ace against La Real. It was cool. Nice. I was at the Leicester City game against Everton when they lifted the Premier League when Andrea Bocelli... You'll like him. Wow. You'll, you'll no, like, that's you so will oh, like wow. this joke. Really? It's all about oh. Andrea Bocelli was there and he sung, yeah, that song that opera singer sings. Ness and yeah, Dorma. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they lifted the, the Premier League trophy. I, I like that. There. That's pretty cool that you were there. What about you, Seb? God, this is going to be underwhelming. I can't match we, that at all. You don't have to pick, uh, a football, I remember, pick, a football, um, pick a football thing, but you can pick whatever you want. Pick a football one. Um, when I was younger, I always weirdly expected really, really good players to be much bigger than everybody else on the yeah. pitch um and i remember going to see jürgen klinsman play for spurs for the first time uh, in a game they lost at home 2-1 to wimbledon well done f for ruining that for me <laughs> but you go there and you have this expectation that like they're going to be eight foot tall mm. and there's just these tiny little guys who everybody's who, who all just look the same and uh i did the same I, I got to see eric Cantona once when he was playing for man united and I had that same thing, like you, because of the way he held himself in the pitch, you expect he's 10 foot tall, he's massive, he's, he's going to be like a kind of a character from the Trojan mm. War, right? And it's just, it's very interesting. I, but I remember even then, he still had this amazing aura, just the way he used to walk around the pitch. And um, I'll never forget yeah. that. It's no Andrea Bocelli, but it was still pretty cool. I had just, uh, one more, because uh, it was interesting, because I wanted to do not a football one. Um, 
I used to go and see Biffy Clyro play all the time. So when they used to play in front of no, you know, they were always quite busy, but they did the work, man. They did all the work, and they I saw them all the way through from uh, like the first album right through to I mean, they, they had a stop after is it Finityland? Finityland was the third one, wasn't it? I can't remember what it was called. And so I saw them all the way through there, and so mm. Ruben were supporting them. Sometimes I loved Ruben. <clears throat> but then I also used to see Frightened Rabbit like, during the Midnight Organ fight era. That when they were absolutely the best right. at that. In, uh, in the world ever Idleworld as well so that's pretty peak. cool that's lots of great bands at their peaks what's the name of the singer from Idleworld he had a really funny name Roddy Wimble that's it yeah <laughs> Roddy Wimble yeah he's a great man he's so good good singer yeah, I, like I served yeah. David Mitchell on a pub once laughed about that the whole way through he was had a funny <laughs> face and Gandalf what's that guy's name Gandalf McAllen. What's his name? Gandalf the Wizard. Yeah, he came yeah. in. Gandalf the Wizard. <laughs> Stop, came in. Yeah, thank you, Ian McAllen. Ian just... Gandalf the Wizard. Ian <laughs> I made uh, I made Hugh Grant swear. Yeah, he had old Boglins with him, and he was hanging out. And you yeah, I love Goblins. Yeah, Timothy Spall was in there once. Speaking of Goblins, just because he's got a kind of small, sort of hunched, sort of uh, that was rude. I like Timothy Spall. <laughs> now let's end. Let's end. But first, first, I will say. Please check out the TIFO book, How to Watch Football. You can order that on, on uh, online, Waterstones and all good bookshops and stuff. People from America asking. There will, it will be uh, available. Uh, just bear, bear with us to get, to get a link. You can also get it on, on a Kindle. It's, you know, it's available everywhere. And it's, it's, um, it's, it, it, RRP is at £10. So it's not you know, hugely expensive. It's, it's uh, accessible and affordable. I will say thank you to, uh, to Mr. Toad, uh, JJ Bull the Bullard. I'll say thank you to Seb Stafford Bloor, Steve Hankey, of course, Don in the background and John let's end on your anecdote about how you made Hugh Grant swear and nobody say anything after John's finished that'll be the end okay <laughs> John I was at University of St Andrews in Scotland which is famous for the golf and they used to have a regular pro-am golf tournament and you would mean that you would see many famous people there anyway I was just walking down the street walked around a corner walked full pelt into Hugh Grant and he went bloody hell and that was it. That's the story. <laughs> <laughs>